You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Before we read, though, just a bit of background to the baptism of Christ. We'll start off really simple and say that it's this. It's the first Trinitarian theophany in the... <laughs> That's a joke. Sorry, so it's going to start off really simple. It is the first Trinitarian theophany in the ministry of Christ. What that means is uh, that it's the first time where God appears clearly to people as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what theophany means, God revealing himself. It's the first place where we see in history, actually, as far as we know, recorded, where there are hints in the Old Testament, there are little things, you know, the we of creation, the three strangers who come to meet Abraham, there are hints, but this is the first place where we clearly see God revealed as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes into the water. As he goes, as he comes out of the water, he sees heaven open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks. This is my son with whom I am well, ple- well pleased. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And um, today what I want to talk to you about, what I believe God wants to bring to us is that what, one of the practical ways that the Trinity makes a difference to us, it's not just high theology, it's not just some philosophical concept, but it makes a, a difference and in lots of different ways. And um, to do that, I want to contrast the passage that Murray's already read for us from Mark's Gospel with Psalm 29. And the, the imagery in that psalm is really powerful. Just to give you a heads up to kind of key you into it as we read it. It imagines God speaking and his voice is booming over the world. It seems that maybe it starts off over the ocean. And, and his voice is so powerful that it, that it thunders. It causes lightning storms to happen. It causes earthquakes Trees snap in half and forests are stripped bare by the force of God's voice. That's what's happening in this passage. Let's stand as we read Psalm 29 together. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Lord, we pray you would just enable us to receive from you today. Open your word to us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have your seats? There are two features that link our reading uh in the gospel with the psalm that I've just read. The first is the voice of the Lord over the waters. They're in both. So you've got the voice of the Father 
over the waters of Jordan speaking. And in the psalm, you've got the voice of the Lord thundering over the waters of the, of the sea. And then we have another feature as well. Uh, the Psalm 29 finishes with the Lord blesses his people with peace. And in the baptism of Jesus, the dove, or the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, representing, amongst other things, the peace of God. So there's this link that kind of ties these two passages together. But there's also a contrast uh, that comes because when God has revealed his Trinity, he reveals him to, himself to us in a way that is fuller than we've understood before. So in the psalm, what it's talking about there is the strength and the power and the authority of God. It's emphasizing, of course, in that graphic imagery, the twisting of oaks and the laying bare of forests and the jumping of the earth. It's, it's, it's pointing to us, pointing us to God's power. He sits enthroned over the flood is the, the phrase that really sums it all up. And that imagery of God enthroned over, over waters is talking about God's absolute power over everything. Water in the Old Testament often represents the forces opposed to God, forces of evil, his literal enemies, or forces of chaos, those things that are powerful and surround us and sometimes can be scary or dangerous and destructive. And God's authority over them, when nobody else can control the waves or the wind or the lightning or the earthquake or the volcano or his enemies, no one else can beat those things. Only God can do that. And that's what that phrase means. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. He has power. And we see that lots of places in the Old Testament. So, for example, you've got God bringing forth from creation, from the primeval waters at the beginning of creation, he brings forth dry land. In Job, uh, God says uh, to Job in Job 38, Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. You see what God is saying to Job there? I have power even over the oceans. The most powerful, chaotic, dangerous thing. It's a picture of his power. God protects Noah during the great flood. God parts the Red Sea um, to enable the Israelites to escape from Egypt, which is also is, is a literal, a physical thing that actually happened, but it's also symbolic because the waters in the in the Bible in the Old Testament especially represent the nations who are opposed to God, who stand to his kind of a, a not just a physical act, but also God saying, I'm going to rescue you out of the nations. I'm going to point you over all the other nations of the world. So they represent the nations around Israel whom God will subdue under, <coughs> at some point in history, God will subdue the nations under Israel's mighty rule with God as their king. So what's the message of all those things? God is enthroned over the flood. It's his strength. However things are right now, in the world, in your life, whatever's going on, God wins. God's voice, his word, his will, his way, he flattens his enemies. He destroys everything that will stand in his way. Nothing will triumph against him. Nothing can stand against him. God is over the waters. So if you put... You know, that sounds like good news to me right now. <laughs> Put yourself in Israel's shoes at various times in history, whether it's individual people like Joseph or Israel in captivity or under siege or 
uh, Jerusalem under siege, there are many times when that reassurance was good news, wasn't it? Whatever's happening right now in your life, God eventually will win. But it's not the whole news. It's not the whole news. The whole news comes in the New Testament when we see God not just over the waters, but in the waters and through the waters. When Jesus submits himself into to John's baptism, as he plunges into the water, something incredibly important is revealed about how God exercises that strength. As at Jesus' baptism, as the Father's voice speaks, just like in the psalm, we also see God is there. He's in the water too. As the Son is plunged into the Jordan, we see that God is through the waters as the Spirit comes to descend upon him. God is over, in, and through the waters. And why is that important? We could, uh, like I said, we can take a bunch of illustrations from Israel's history, but I'll just give you a, uh, a recent illustration instead. I came across a, a tweet on uh, New Year's Day by uh, um, an American preacher, prosperity preacher. I won't name him because it's not nice and you like to think well of people. <laughs> um, but it's probably the one you're thinking of. Uh, <laughs> and he says this, he says this, Let this sink down in your spirit. Your due season is here. Promotion is coming. Increase is coming. Good breaks are coming. In this due season, your cup is going to overflow. That's just... That's a nice thing to say, isn't it? Isn't it? It's all right, isn't it? I mean, okay, but there's something in us that goes, wait wait, wait a minute, what is that? Is it pessimism? Is is this guy, whose name will not be mentioned, is he just more optimistic than everybody else? Is he just more positive about God's faithfulness? Has he just got a greater grasp on God's strength as it's portrayed in, in Psalm 29? Is, is he just, God is going to win, guys, and he just wants that message to soak in. Actually, being generous, I think that probably, I would like to think that's his motivation, to, to give that message. But the thing that gives us a check in our spirits about that is not just because we're realists and he's an optimist. It's not just because we're pessimists and, and he's, he's somehow got faith that we don't have. It's because in our experience and in the Bible, we see a message that is much richer, much more nuanced than that. It helps us to think about the future, but it doesn't help us right now. What if you're not in your due season? What if that promotion is delayed? What if the increase doesn't come? What if the good break doesn't happen? What message does God give to us in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our frustrations or our trials or our temptations or our suffering or undergoing evil? What message is there in the middle of those things? The message that God will win eventually is comforting in a way but it, it's cold comfort in a way. And, and that depiction of God's strength, if God is just stronger than everybody else, if he's just like the world's best chess player and he can defeat all his enemies, that's, that's not actually the full biblical, it's not the Trinitarian picture of God's strength. God's strength is of a different type. When Jesus goes down into the water, he shows us that God isn't just stronger than evil in that kind of raw, I'm bigger than you, Donald Trump, my nuclear button's bigger than your nuclear button kind of way. God is stronger in a way that just blows our minds. God is actually able to 
enter into the purposes of those who are opposed to him. He's able to use the plans of his enemies and the forces that are arrayed against him to achieve his purposes. That is incredible. He's not in charge of, he's not in charge in the sense that he's making them do those things, but he's able to turn those things that are arrayed against his will and his purposes for his ends. So it's not that he's a better chess player. It's that he's got like another eight boards to play on. You know, we don't know about it. He he sees ways around things. He has a different rule book to us. God is able to use those things that we think of as evil. Well, things that are evil and those things that that we don't want to go through. Things that are unpleasant. He's able to use suffering and frustration. And all the things that that tweet sort of ignores... He's able to say, not just I'm going to win in the end, but I am with you in those things. That's what Jesus coming down into the water. I mean, it's um, a million things being symbolized there. But one of the things it symbolizes is I'm with you in the midst of those things. What that reveals to us is not just that God will one day win, but it enables us to view the world in a completely new way. It enables us to begin to see the world in everything, in things that seem bad, in things that are bad, in the consequences even of sin or even of rebellion against God. That not only that he will win, but that he is with us in the midst of those things. He's with us in the storm and the flood. He's not only able to give us peace at the end when everything is wrapped up and every bit of evil has been wiped away. It's not just, it's not just peace at the end. One day there will be peace. Like at the end of the psalm, it is peace that passes understanding. Peace in the midst of things that are happening right now. It's not just joy when, you know, when the last loose thread has been tied up. It's joy in the midst of whatever we're going through right now. And that ability to look at the the world that way, that in everything God is blessing us, even in things that it's very hard to see that he's blessing us through. God enables us to see him finally as a father. To see that in all things, our father loves us, pours out his goodness to us, blesses us, gives glory to himself, works all things to, for our good and for his glory. In every, in all, in all ways, in everything, in all times, he's speaking to us as his children. And he's saying to us, I am pleased with you. I love you. And that enables us to see the world in a different way. So if you look, um, go back through the Bible, if we just, with Psalm 29, you look at, say at the, at the um, Genesis when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and there's all those curses. Cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, you know, uh, Great will be your pain in childbearing. Your work by the sweat of your brow. Your return to the dust from which you came. All these things, if you see them just from Psalm 29, God is stronger and bigger than everything else. All that saying is God wins in the end. And out they go of the garden. They leave God behind in the garden. And there's that picture of that angel with a flaming sword, isn't there? They leave him behind. Out they go into a desolate world without God. But once we see that God is not just the voice over the waters, but he's in the waters, we see that, yes, they've left Eden. They left behind something incredibly precious. But God has not left them. 
in the sun, he's followed them out. And that's literally what he did, isn't it? In his incarnation, he follows them out of paradise to redeem them. In, in the picture of the prodigal son, the father is waiting at home. He's looking. He's waiting for his son to come back. But once we begin to see things from the perspective of, of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we realize that the prodigal son is not alone, but in all things, God is calling him back. In the pig's will, in the prostitution, in, in the poverty, God is calling him urging him to turn around and accompanying him there and back again to bring him to the Father. In the the exile for the people of Israel, God said to him, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So in the midst of this worst thing that ever happened to, to Israel, when Jerusalem was sacked and they were taken into captivity, God said, I am with you. God is in all things working everything together for his glory and for our good. I was talking to Sophie the other day and she was sharing, a, I think something you read in the paper, Sophie, about a, a lady, 95, who had accidentally run over someone and killed them. Did anyone else read that story? And Sophie just asked her a little question. Sorry to pick on you, Sophie. Um, which is like, you know, will God wipe her memory? You know, if she goes to heaven... Well, God wipe her memory. How, how could you live with something like that? It's a good question, isn't it? Well done, <laughs> And the answer is no. There will be no memory wiping in heaven. We, we will be, on that day, when we are there with him, when we're perfected, we will see everything from God's perspective. And we will see that in all things he's worked together for the good of those that love him and for his glory. There'll not be one thing that you've experienced that you need to rub out and say, oh, that wasn't according to God's plan. Everything will be according to his purposes. And above all, everything will be according to his love. And as hard as that is for us to grasp, that is an absolute truth. That's what this uh, the baptism Christ reveals to us. God is with us, not just winning at the end, but with us in everything, working all things together for his good. Nothing will be wasted. Nothing will be without purpose. And when we, so when we say that God is sovereign, that is what we mean. That God's strength and power is absolute, but not that he's just bigger and stronger than everybody else. Not that he controls every minute detail like someone pulling puppet strings, but that somehow, in a way that we cannot understand, God is so powerful that he even turns the power of his enemies, even bad things, even things that we would not choose. He turns those things to his purposes and to his good and to our good and our blessing. And he expresses his love in all things. Okay, so far so good. Good theory. But the truth is, if if God's revealed himself as Father to us this way, that if we can see his love in all things, how many of us actually experience that on a day-to-day level, that we in everything we face, Good and bad, boring and interesting, great suffering or, you know, or minor suffering. Do we actually see and think, God loves me. He's my father. Everything he does is for my good. 
Anyone want to put their hand up? Anyone manage to do that? <laughs> the truth is we don't relate to God as the way he's revealed himself. We don't trust that in all things he's blessing us. We don't trust that in all things his love is being poured out to us. Well, I, I don't. And I probably speak for some of you, if not all of you. We are, when confronted with the realities of life, fearful, mistrusting, panicked by everyday occurrences, worried about the present, doubtful about the future, mournful and without hope about what God can do with our past. We are, we don't look at things through the lens of God being over and in and through our troubles. We may think, okay, it's all going to be all right in the end, but we don't actually see him as a son relating to a father. Jesus, as the Son of God, of course, he perfectly and fully understood the Father's love. And that's what enabled him to undertake our rescue. Because he knew the Father loved him, he was able to empty himself and take the form of a man and be obedient unto death and die upon a cross and go to that cross and say, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Knowing that even in the midst of the abandonment and the agony and the full weight of our sin weighing down on him, that the Father loved him and would be faithful to him. Jesus knew that. And so there's this pivotal moment, his beginning of his public ministry, when that becomes apparent that you know he understands that and the Father understands that. It's revealed for us to see. In entering those waters, he's not just being baptized, he's symbolizing that obedience to his father. I trust you. And the father says, I love you. And the spirit descends to fulfill that promise. What happens to us as Christians is Jesus welcomes us into, he invites us into seeing the world from the perspective of the Son. Seeing all things, that in all things God loves us, that in all things God can be glorified, that in all things we can be blessed, that in every situation we can know the fullness of God's life through the Holy Spirit. There's no exception to that. There's no little space of your life that God doesn't know or care about. There's nothing that's meaningless. It's all part of his love for us. So often we're like, uh, you know, I don't know, I think, I think I saw it in a cartoon recently. Someone, there's a, someone who seems swept out to sea and they look like they're drowning and then someone just walks along in about six inches of water, comes along just to, you know, say, it's okay, you just stop panicking, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> And it's, in a way, Jesus enables us to do that. Yes, there are bad things in our life. There are, there's evil and suffering and there are chaotic things and there are dangerous things. But Jesus is enabled, he's able to come alongside us and say, hey, you're not going to drown. He enables us to stand up in the midst of those things and see the Father's love. So the, the practical part of the message today is how we do that. How do we grow in our ability to see God that way? And I think it's especially, so our ability to God's love in all things, and I think that's especially hard, especially difficult when it comes to 
suffering. And by suffering, I mean those things that we would not naturally choose for ourselves. It can be anything from minor things to wondering what the point of, you know, what's the point of my job or, you know, it's small things to, to great suffering, painful illnesses and death and tragedy and all those things. When we're confronted by those things, it's particularly hard in the midst of those things to say, oh God, you're my father and you love me. And in, in this thing, you're pouring out your love to me. So how do we see God as Father? How do we step into the water with Jesus and see the heavens open and hear God's voice say to us, you're my child? That's what I want to talk to you about today, practical ways. Two very quick things and then four big points. The first is, of course, that perspective is only available to us if we're actually Christians. God works all things together for the good of those that love him. So we have to come to faith in him for the things that we experience as maybe things we don't want to happen, for them to be things that actually bring us into his blessing, enable us to see his love, of course. And so, yes, we have to step into the waters with Christ. Literally, we have to come to faith in him, uh, put our trust in him, uh, be baptized. We literally have to do that. And it's also worth mentioning that God can actually give us, by his Holy Spirit, supernatural consolation. There is uh, The Puritans used to speak of the sealing of the Spirit, I think we would probably just call it the baptism of the Spirit. There are times in the Christian life when God is supernaturally pours into our hearts assurance. And often what happens at that moment when that happens to people is they go, they find Romans 8 suddenly comes alive to them. That in all things God works together, everything for the good of those that love him, that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And those truths become incredibly real, not because we've done anything, but God has given us that gift. Those are, so we've got to, yes, we've got to be a Christian. And yes, God can supernaturally enable us to see his love as Father. We can come to that awareness of him as Father in those ways. But I want to talk to you about four, uh, everyday ways, if you like, the normal things we have, we should do on an ongoing basis to enable us to see God's love, especially in the midst of trial and temptation and suffering. The four things are these. We have to hear the Father's voice. We have to copy the Son's obedience. We have to, Ask, what are you saving me from? And we have to ask, how are you glorified in this? Four things. First then, we have to hear the Father's voice. One of the uh, great quotes from Sherlock Holmes, uh, I don't know if any Holmes fans here, but one of them is this, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Right? Let's take a really difficult example then from the Old Testament of God is love. The flood, when God killed everybody, apart from Noah and his family. Okay? It's hard, isn't it? Everybody died apart from Noah and his family. But God is love. It wasn't just the Father's voice booming over the waters. Jesus was that the Son was involved, the Spirit was involved, that the Trinity was there. One thing, we know it's true, it happened, right? The other absolute is the cross. God reveals his absolute self-giving love. He is completely for the human race. He is for us. There is nothing he would not give us. There's no thing he would not lay down in order to win us for himself. He has given us everything. He's given us his son. He's, it's absolute, isn't it? Take those two things together. Without the cross, the flood is just this bamboozling, difficult exercise of God's 
power. It's Psalm 29 just on its own. It's the, it's the trees being flattened, isn't it? It's just God is all powerful. But once we see that God is love as revealed in the sun, we can reinterpret that event and know, no matter how improbable it seems to you, that even in that thing, God is love. It changes our way of looking at the world. The cross. The death of the Son of God. The worst thing that ever happened. Reveals the love of God. You know, we're, we're not holy. We're not loving in ourselves. We're scarred and we're twisted by a million unloving interactions with people. It's hard for us to believe that God loves us. But the cross is our absolute guarantee. And often in life we're faced by a situation and we think to ourselves, and maybe you're in the situation even today, God, how is this your love? How is your love revealed to me in this situation? This thing that I'm going through, this, this thing that I have to face. And the cross tells us no matter how improbable we find it, it must be that God loves us because he's given us his son. He's already given us everything. So no matter how difficult you find it to believe that God loves you in the situation that you're going through now or something God's taken you through in the past or something maybe you will go through in the future. The truth is if you are a child of God, if you are, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and know him as your Lord and Savior, then God is always loving in his actions towards you because of the cross. So when we're, we're te- tempted to doubt God's love for us, first thing we hear the Father's voice. Don't listen to the enemy. He says, what's God doing? Don't listen to the whisper that says, where is he right now? Has he, he's abandoned you again. He's left you to struggle on your own. You're drowning. You're going to be overwhelmed. Listen to God's voice. You are my child. I love you. In practical ways, we can do that. We can do that in prayer. You know, I just, God loves us being honest. We can tell him our fears. We can say, God, it feels like you don't love me. It feels like you're gone. It feels like you're a long way away. Tell him, you confess your doubts. Tell him uh, how it looks to you. Tell him what the devil would whisper in your ear. Give him all those things, but also tell him that you trust him. Tell him like Job, you know, make that defiant statement. When you're tempted to not believe in the midst of trial, make that defiant statement and say, I know, whatever happens to me, I know that my Redeemer lives. When we come as children in simple trust, when we come speaking our desires and our fears, when we just come and speak to him and declare our trust in him, we hear his voice and he fills us with the assurance of his love. So hear the father's voice. Secondly, copy the son's obedience. When we submit to God in that way and we we hand over control to God and say to him, I trust you in this, I know that even though it's hard for me to believe, I know that your love is being portrayed to me in whatever I'm going through. The temptation then is to be a bit like someone who's been talked on, uh, talked into going on, on a fairground ride. I've been talked into going on a fairground ride a few times. <laughs> you, you don't enjoy it. You don't enter into it. You just hang on for dear life. Like when the kids get me to go on that giant swinging boat thing at uh, Chessington. You know, I'm not, I don't particularly enjoy that, but I'll go on it for them. Maybe once. 
So we can, we can hand over control to God and we say, okay, God, I know that you love me. I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to, I know that in this, you're in this. And then instead of actually entering into that, we can just kind of cling on for dear life. And sometimes when God takes us through difficult circumstances, we can be like that. We can just be clinging on for dear life. And actually God calls us to copy the son's obedience. Jesus' obedience was active, not passive. They had a, a council in heaven. They decided together what to do. Jesus agreed to come. Yes, the Father gave his one and only Son, as we misquoted from 1 John 3.16. This way. But the Son gave himself. His obedience was passive. He made himself nothing, it tells us in Philippians 2. He emptied himself. No one took his life from it. him. He lays it down freely. He purchased by his blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation for the glory of God. He did those things. So to enter into God's blessing, to see his love in every situation, even the most difficult, we have to try and enter into active obedience. Sometimes uh, with uh, our kid, well, with Charlotte at the moment, you, you know, have you ever done this with your kids where you suggest they're gonna, you're going to do something and maybe they don't really understand or they mishear you and they throw a little paddy? You ever had that? And you know it's something they like, but they're standing, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Or you're trying to lead them somewhere. You know they want to go, like McDonald's for ice cream or something. And they've just got it in their heads. This is the last place they want to go. And then finally, when they understand what's actually happening, tears still rolling down Charlotte's face usually. She's like, oh, oh okay then. <laughs> you ever had that experience? That's the same with, with us and God. We're his children. He's leading us to places that we want to go to. But we can't understand. We are misheard or we, we don't understand where he's trying to take us. And so we're like little Charlotte. I don't want to go there. No, I don't want to do it. I don't want it. And then finally, when we realize where he's taking us, we're like, oh, oh, oh all right then. <laughs> we have to enter into active obedience to grasp what God is, to, to, to see God's love in every situation. If we could see from God's perspective, we would not only submit to his plans, we would, like Christ, choose those same plans for ourselves. Think about the worst thing that's happened or is happening to you. This is an outrageous claim that I'm making right now. But this is the full extent of what this truth means. We would not only submit to God and say, oh, okay then, if you say so we would choose the same things for ourselves if we could see what God intends for us. One writer says this, every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials he sent us here. That is astonishing. And if it's true, it changes everything. So we have to enter, cooperate with what God's doing. Pray again. Tell him, like the Lord Jesus gives us a great example. If it's possible, you know what, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, can we do something else? We can be honest with God. When faced by trial or temptation or suffering, anything that threatens us and makes us feel like maybe God is not in it, tell him, but tell him also, not my will, but yours. 
And if he says, we're doing it my way, throw yourself into serving him and being faithful in the situation he's called you to. What does active obedience look like? It looks like faithful work in a place where you find yourself embittered. You know, Paul says, slaves obey your masters. You think your job is bad. (laughs) It looks like hopeful perseverance when you have no right to hope. It looks like not giving up when everyone else wants to give up. It looks like courage in the face of fear. It's basically saying to God in every aspect of our life, if this is where you've led me, I'm not just going to go along with it. I'm going to pour myself into serving you through this situation. That's active obedience. So hear the Father's voice, copy the Son's obedience. Thirdly, ask, what are you saving me from? There's a purpose. God is always sanctifying us, changing us in everything he leads us through, good and bad. You know, and one thing that makes a difference to our experience, especially of suffering, is understanding. And I believe that if we're going, if you're going through something difficult, big or small, if we ask God, God, give me insight. What are you doing in me through this? What are you saving me from? Often he'll reveal that to us. Jesus going through the waters is like a, it's a, it's a picture, not of many things, but it's a picture of Moses leading the Israelites out from Egypt. They're being saved from something. So when we go into that perspective with Jesus, when we try to see the Father in all things and try to meet with God in the midst of the waters, God is saving us from something. He's purifying us. He's freeing us from fears. He's setting us free from prisons, from habits. I just think of, do you know what? I just couldn't think of a single example because there are just so many in my life (laughs) where God has taken me through situations that I've hated at the time. And he has dealt with ugh, every sin you want to list, basically, in one way or another. We're still dealing with them, but, you know, through trials, through temptations, through suffering, through difficulty. Paul says of the thorn in his flesh, which must have been pretty bad, whatever it was, that God gave it to him in order to keep him from being conceited. God dealt with Paul's pride through suffering. You know, so out of context, you know, if you, if you see someone with a knife and they're like, okay, I'm going to cut you, you'd run away, wouldn't you? But if that person was a surgeon and you're in a hospital and you've got a deadly illness, you're not going to run away. And the context is everything. When Jesus takes us through things, he's not a madman with a knife. He is a skillful surgeon. He's teaching us to hate sin and to love Christ. Okay, so ask what you saving me from, and fourthly, ask what you saving me for. Again, I think God wants to give us understanding, and I think often when He takes us through difficulties, He can not only reveal what am I healing you of, what difference am I making to what's gone before, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to glorify myself through you. I'm going to do something through you. And this, this is this is the big picture. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the point. This is what all this points to. God achieves through our difficulties, through our trials and through our sufferings, through things that we think of as opposed to his purposes, even through the plans of his enemies. God achieves more through those things than he would otherwise. 
God is more glorified by a world in which we were, we were free to reject him and in fact did so and caused the fall of all things and it caused his son to come and die on a cross. He's more glorified through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the glorification of Christ than he would be through a world without sin. That's the strength of God. Not just to be stronger than his enemies, not just to win in the end but to triumph even more so because of the plans of his enemies. For his glory to shine more brightly because of the darkness that tries to overwhelm it. That's how different, that's how much stronger God is. God is more glorified in us. We know him more, we display him more, we are more blessed by him through our trials than without them. And we need to learn to see the world that way. Think of the cross. Think of what Jesus knew. Imagine how differently the disciples would have reacted if they could see the big picture. If they, they were blind, weren't they? To, they couldn't understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. They couldn't see how all the, the, the streams and the rivulets of prophecy all flowed into one giant <laughs> river towards the cross. They couldn't see how Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. They couldn't see how God had arranged everything. All they could see was it looks like the enemy is going to triumph. And so they wept and they fled and they deserted him and they they were despaired. But imagine if they could see from God's perspective. Imagine if they could see what God was going to do. That through the death of his son, he was going to reconcile all things save for himself, everyone who would believe. Imagine if they could just step into that perspective for a moment and see from God's perspective. Often in the midst of difficulties, we come to know God's love in ways we wouldn't otherwise. God brings blessings to us through affliction. One uh, person who's had a lifelong illness, said this, God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Hard to come to that. You know, God does heal. Of course he does. But sometimes he does even more. There is nothing as beautiful, as glorious as the Christian understanding of God that leads us to trust him and obey him in the face of evil. Not just hold on in the midst of evil, but trust him and obey him in the face of evil. And just as the cross shines brightly because of the darkness of evil, so when we look to glorify God in the midst of our trials, when we say, what are you saving me for? God is more glorified. So we can be patient in affliction. You think of Israel in the wilderness, they struggled and they wrestled with God and they rejected his advances and they rebelled against him. When God takes us through the wilderness, we can be patient. We can be joyful when everyone else is hopeless. We can face illness. We can face death with courage and hope. When we ask, what are you saving me for? God can lead us by willingly entering into chaos or darkness or suffering or evil of the world around around us. We can bring the light of the gospel to people who would never encounter it, encounter it otherwise. 
You know, whether God calls us to bring in evangelism to people we fear will reject us or in loving service to people who live in conditions that we fear will infect us. Everything in between, every time we go out into the darkness, into the chaos, into the evil of the world with the gospel, every time we say, God, what are you calling me to do in the midst of these things? How can I obey you? How can I glorify you? What blessing will you bring through my suffering? We come to see him as father. So yes, God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is over the waters. But at the baptism of Christ and the revelation of the Trinity, we see what that means. It's not just that at the end of time he wins. It's that even now he is glorified. It's not at the end of time we'll be blessed. It's even now we are being blessed. It's not at the end of the to- end of time we will see his love. It's even now, through Christ in the Spirit, we can know his love. He works all things together. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So his temple is not a single building. It's not a lonely place on some hill in one country somewhere in the world. His temple is all things, all creation, all events. Everything will be reconciled to him through Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is over all things and he's in all things and he's through all things. And one day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses his name, All will, as the psalmist says, all will cry glory. And the glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all things in heaven and earth will be at peace. Amen. Let's pray.